Today's C.S. Lewis Daily comes to you from A Personal Heresy, a Controversy, copyright 1939 by C.S. Lewis. I admit that some writers have told me for the first time of heavens and hells I never met before, but many, equally greater, have told me only of those we all have to bear whether we choose to call them unbearable or not. What hells can be harder to bear than those in which many of our unpoetic fellow creatures live? What man, after 40 years in the world, has not experienced enough, if that were all that was needed, to be raw material for all the tragedies of Shakespeare? Once again, the view I am fighting depends on a gross underestimation of common things and common man. To be a man, as Professor Tolkien recently reminded us, is tragedy enough. Yes, and comedy enough, too. The naturalistic doctrine is a mere assumption first made by the arrogance of poets and since accepted by the misdirected humility of an irreligious age. There he's discussing how a derogatory sort of humanism has boiled down humanity to be very little and very nothing when we talk about the sack of chemicals rather than seeing those chemicals as an amazing elevation to see human beings and humanity and all things as sort of lower, nothing chance beings. He further combats that way of thinking, essentially the unmagical way of looking at the world, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, which I will read to you now. My copy of his essay is published in the compilation called The Weight of Glory that includes all of his most quoted essays that I believe can be purchased at cslewis.com. He continues in the U.S. to be published via HarperCollins Publications. The Weight of Glory If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. Nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics, and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to occupy these things. Money is not the natural reward of love. 
That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get peerage is a mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not, victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. There is also a third case which is more complicated. An enjoyment of Greek poetry is certainly a proper and not a mercenary reward for learning Greek, but only those who have reached the stage of enjoying Greek poetry can tell from their own experience that this is so. The schoolboy beginning Greek grammar cannot look forward to his adult enjoyment as Sophocles as a lover looks forward to marriage or a general to victory. He has to begin by working for marks, or to escape punishment, or to please his parents, or at best in the hope of a future good which he cannot at present imagine or desire. His position, therefore, bears a certain resemblance to that of the mercenary, and the reward he is going to get will, in actual fact, be a natural or proper reward, but he will not know that till he has got it. Of course, he gets it gradually. Enjoyment creeps in upon the mere drudgery, and no one could point to a day or an hour when the one ceased and the other began. But it is just insofar as he approaches the reward that he becomes able to desire it for its own sake. Indeed, the power of so desiring it is, itself, a preliminary reward. The Christian, in relation to heaven, is in much the same position as this schoolboy. Those who have attained everlasting life in the vision of God doubtless know very well that it is no mere bribe, but the very consummation of their earthly discipleship. But we who have not yet attained it cannot know this in the same way, and cannot even begin to know it at all, except by continuing to obey and finding the first reward of our obedience and our increasing power to desire the ultimate reward. Just in proportion as the desire grows, our fear lest it should be a mercenary desire will die away, and finally be recognized as an absurdity. But probably this will not, for most of us, happen in a day. Poetry replaces grammar, gospel replaces law, Longing transforms obedience as gradually as the tide lifts a grounded ship. But there is one other important similarity between the schoolboy and ourselves. If he is an imaginative boy, he will quite probably be reveling in the English poets and romancers suitable to his age some time before he begins to suspect that Greek grammar is going to lead him to more and more enjoyments of this same sort. He may even be neglecting his Greek to read Shelley and Swinburne in secret. In other words, the desire which Greek is really going to gratify already exists in him and is attached to objects which seem to him quite unconnected with Xenophon and the verbs. Now, if we were made for heaven, and the desire for our proper place will already be in us, but not yet attached to the true object, and will even appear as the rival of that object. And this, I think, is just what we find. No doubt there is one point in which my analogy of the schoolboy breaks down. The English poetry which he reads when he ought to be doing Greek exercises may be just as good as the Greek poetry into which the exercises are leading him, so that in fixing on Milton instead of journeying on to Aeschylus, his desire is not embracing a false object. But our case is very different. If a trans-temporal, trans-finite good is our real destiny, then any other good on which our desire fixes must be in some degree fallacious, must bear at best only a symbolical relationship to what will truly satisfy. I don't think we say symbolical in American English. I think we say symbolic. But he, he says symbolical. 
In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence, the secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The book or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but they are mistaken for the thing itself. They turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshippers, for they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. And yet it is a remarkable thing that such philosophies of progress or creative evolution themselves bear reluctant witness to the truth that our real goal is elsewhere. When they want to convince you that earth is your home, notice how they set about it. They begin by trying to persuade you that earth can be made into heaven, thus giving a sop to your sense of exile and the earth as it is. Next, they tell you that this fortunate event is still a good way off in the future, thus giving you a sop to your knowledge that the fatherland is not here now. Finally, lest your longing for the transtemporal should awake and spoil the whole affair, they use any rhetoric that comes to hand to keep out of your mind the recollection that even if all the happiness they promised could come to man on earth, yet still each generation would lose it by death, including the last generation of all in the whole story would be nothing, not even a story, forever and ever. Hence, all the nonsense that Mr. Shaw puts into the final speech of Lilith, and Bergson's remark that the Elan Vital is capable of surmounting all obstacles, perhaps even death, as if we could believe that any social or biological development on this planet will delay the senility of the sun or reverse the second law of thermodynamics. Do what they will, then, we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it? Nor does the being hungry prove that we have bread. But I think it may be urged that this misses the point. A man's physical hunger does not prove that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In the same way, that I do, though I do not believe that my desire for paradise proves I shall enjoy it, I wish I did, 
I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists, and some men will. A man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be a very odd thing if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world. And that has been today's C.S. Lewis Daily. I invite you to continue to investigate new ways of finding God in the unusual places of the world around us by checking out Prometheus Studies by Jen Finelli. It can be found pretty much anywhere online. You do have to search up those specific terms, though. Prometheus Studies, Jen Finelli, Finding God in Palabolas, Tarantulas, and Mario. We discuss entropy and introns and all the little places that the world is hinting at you that there is a greater glory somewhere beyond. Little ways to recognize the fingerprint of the divine in the world around us. Thank you very much for listening, and I wish you a lovely afternoon.